Hello, and welcome to Good People to Know, a Downworth podcast brought to you by WFI Insurance, where we talk about the things that matter most to regional Australians. Before we begin, I want to warn our listeners that today's episode discusses mental health, suicide and suicidal ideation, which some people might find confronting. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or use their text service on 0477 13 11 14. Data suggests that the number of people with a diagnosed mental health condition is around the same regardless of whether you live in a regional or a metropolitan area. However, it's been suggested that more mental health conditions go undiagnosed in regional Australia and many of the triggers leading to conditions are quite different to the cities. To make matters worse, suicide is one of the top 10 leading causes of death in outer-regional, remote and very remote areas, with rates of suicide increasing with remoteness. And according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, in 2019, the age standardised suicide rate outside of Australia's capital cities was over 60% higher. To discuss this very important topic, to help people understand the issue and to know where to turn for support, I'm joined today by Scott Hammond, CEO of Lifeline Broken Hill, Country to Coast. With so much to discuss, we release this conversation in two parts. In this episode, part one, we discuss the statistics and the unique challenges faced by regional Australians and the Indigenous community. In the next episode, part two, we discuss the role of social media, the pressures faced by the farming community, the under-resourcing of mental health support services, and how people can care for the mental health of themselves and others. Thanks for joining me today, Scott. And can you just tell me a little bit about today about your role and the areas that you service? Yeah, so my name's Scott Hammond. I've been CEO at the Lifeline Broken Hill Country to Coast for um, just over 10 years now. I have been working in the industry for over 20 years, started um, back in the, the early 2000 um, when um, as a youth worker and, and progressed my way through um, working various roles to, to the role that I have now, which covers an area of the far west New South Wales and regional South Australia. So. To put that into perspective, it's 1.25 million square kilometres. So we we go from um, Cobar in in regional New South Wales um, right across to Sejuna um, in Western Australia and, and up to the Northern Territory border and Queensland border. So it's a very large large area um, and an area that um, isn't very much so isn't so high in populations, but more so. Um, smaller communities that are considered either regional or remote. This is highlights, I think, Scott, just the sheer size of Australia and, uh, you know, to have a territory like that, I I guess you could, you know, drop that into, uh, you know, that probably covers half of Europe in a way. Yeah, it certainly, certainly does. And, and for somebody that's been over to Europe and seeing how quickly you can get around versus, um, you know, quite big um, open wide roads in, in Australia in the vast um, areas that we cover and, you know, you see everything from, you know, droughts to floods um, to fires and, you know, we, we cover an area that encompasses all of that and, and certainly when you're, when you're on the road and you haven't seen a town for, for 200 kilometres, um, you know, that, that starts to put things into perspective but gives you a certainly a long amount, a reasonable amount of time to start to ponder and think about things yourself as a CEO and, and how we're tracking. So, Scott, do you think Australians are aware of the extent of mental health issues within the community 
And secondly, do you think they would be shocked by some of the statistics that I mentioned at the start? Look, I think as Australians, we're becoming a lot more aware of um, the impacts that mental health are having on regional and remote communities. I think um, as we become more expansive in our you know, and, and more savvy around the internet and, and, you know, media and stuff like that and the messaging that we're getting out all the time. Um, over the last 10 years in particular, you've seen a considerable amount of um, knowledge being um, shared and whether it's through those social medias or 24-hour um, news bulletins um, and in particular um, as we see a build-up in, in those awareness campaigns as well in particular that is bringing or raising uh, more knowledge towards um, those city areas when it comes to the struggles that people are having in regional and, and remote areas and, and I suppose struggles that people have been dealing with for, for some time. And I think as we start to see some of the, the further impacts and how some of this now we understand as, as a collective across Australia that, you know, and, and being able to realise what these impacts then have, not only on, on the people in remote areas, but how that impacts people in, in metropolitan areas. And I think, you know, we see that more so now when um, we see floods and fires and, and um, you know, COVID in particular, um, and what that sort of has, has brought to communities and the understanding around things are quite different. Um, but what happens in a regional or remote area does also impact those people in metropolitan areas. So I think we're starting to get a better understanding of the link between the two as well. So are regional Australians more or less likely to experience a mental health condition? Most certainly. I mean, data that was, data backs it. Um, but, you know, most importantly for us in, in regional and remote areas, um, you know, the, there's a significant difference because I think of those when we, in particular, the last four years, if you look at those last four years in particular, um, the comorbidity around um, the environment and the conditions that um, people will face in regional areas um, that not necessarily will impact on, on people living in metropolitan areas. Um, you know, the, the obvious ones are, you know, we, we had the fires and we've seen the fires all across different areas within um, regional Victoria and New South Wales. Um, parts of Queensland and then you see um, you know, the flow on of then you know floods um, and this is coming off of areas that have also dealt with drought and then have gone back into fires and then back into floods and, and you sort of get to a point where you go and everyone always talks about how resilient people are in, in regional areas and I think what we're seeing now is um, the pressure put on those areas that there's not, not even a chance for for us to, to really be able to, um, you know, build that resilience anymore because you've just got, got those comorbidity of um, environmental and social impacts um, that tend to be relentless in the last four years um, to the point where people are becoming mentally fatigued. Um, and it's the first time that I've, in my 20 years, you know, getting out in communities or, or people coming in and accessing, whether it's via telephone crisis lines or whether it's through our our face-to-face -face services, um, you know, the mental fatigue 
and resistance is waning for those people that are living in, in regional areas. And, you know, people are saying, how much more, you know, can we take? Um, so, yeah, certainly um, how that impacts regional areas is, is significantly different to, to metropolitan areas. So my next question, Scott, was going to be, is there what's the difference between mental health in the city versus the regions? But I, I guess from your last your last answer there, you know, there, there's different challenges, but mental health um, challenges exist both in metropolitan Australia and regional Australia. Yeah, you know, mental health, whether you're a young person attending a school, um, you know, bullying is bullying. You know, we, we see and the social media and the stuff around social media uh, and young kids today um, and how they you know, deal with those sorts of things, you know, whether you're, you're a young person growing up in a, in a remote school or versus a young person growing up in, in a metropolitan school, you know, you're going to be dealing with the same, same challenges. Um, but I suppose it's more around um, those social differences and the, the environmental differences that s separate the two. And I certainly wouldn't say um, that you know, within mental health, anybody that's dealing with a situation, it's their, their experience that leads them to, um, you know, the, the situation that presents for, for each individual and, and they are um, different. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always when we talk about treatments and how we treat things is how we need to look at things quite differently from how you treat somebody that may be in um, a metropolitan setting compared to somebody in a regional setting. You know, for example, just there with, with kids with school, I mean, you know, sometimes within um, that metropolitan area, um, people aren't as well connected and know each other as well as you will in a, in a population of, um, say, 20 um, or a population of, of 100. Um, so, you know, those impacts um, are, are significant um, and, and everyone in a small community knows what's going on in a small community. Um, so there's a lot more pressures around those sorts of things as well. Scott, you've touched on some of the contributing factors. Um, is it different for men and women? Yeah, I think um, the difference is the way that men and the way that we are able to cope, I think, is significantly different um, to women. Women tend to, you know, they, they're a lot better at communicating and talking things through. Um, so for us men, that's, that's something that we've, we continue or we've struggled with. I mean, we're starting to see now with so many great programs um, that, that we have out there. And I mean, we have um, local ambassadors and men, um, Brendan Cullen, who is a Lifeline ambassador, who's been doing an amazing amount of work um, in regional areas and remote areas around farming communities that's getting young, young men and, and older men to actually start having conversations and reaching out and getting help. So, you know, breaking down those stigmas. Um, he's just recently gone off and, and completed a, a swim of the English Channel. Um, and, you know, so it, it's people like him that are, that are out there showing that, um, you know, you can, if you put your mind to it, um, you can create the shift needed towards better mental health. Um, but certainly for, for, for men, we've still got a long way. But in saying that with, with women, I mean, um, there's so many, you know, challenges and everything's so unique at the moment. Um, there's a lot that we don't necessarily know about right now um, and in particular the impacts that we've had and coming out of post-COVID um, and what impacts that's going to have further down, down the track. But, um, yeah, for, for, for men being in, you know, what I experience when we're travelling, you can go out to remote areas and you talk to 
to men on farming, you know, proud farming um, families, fourth generation families, um, and the stresses on on those guys to to keep going through. Um, I know when I spoke to a to a to a bloke one day, and he said, you know, he's he's in, inheriting something of so much hard work from from four generations of men before him, um, and he's got to take on that that proud tradition. Um, but how many more droughts can can I have? And when he reflects on on the people in, before him. Um, you know, you might have seen one drought in, in 20 years and um, so, you know, you've got people that have had drought upon drought upon drought um, and then, you know, being lonely out there, um, losing sheep and having to make the decision, you know, put, to put down 2,000 um, sheep. Um, you know, I remember a guy saying, you know, he had a gun and it was sitting alongside of him and he was looking at the sheep and he was and he was thinking about everything and the pressures of everything and just going you know is it worth it is it worth it and you know these these are the the challenges that that are different um you know and coming back and and being expected to you know to be the breadwinner but but you know what we're we're starting to see is the good work that people are doing out there as well and and people like brendan cullen that are, are raising awareness and saying to people you know let's talk about this that men you can come home at night time um have a conversation with your wife um, with the kids, with the family, it's okay not to be okay, um, and we know that this is um, the shift that's we're starting to see that's um, making a difference and saving lives. Yeah, that that challenge of trying to shoulder the load, I suppose, and take it all on, and uh, that 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 fact that there are people there to help and uh, to, to 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 listen, and you can sh- share those share those challenges. Scott, you touched on before, um, you know. Uh, Challenge between, say, in in youth in school kids in cities v v the the country areas, but I guess one thing talking about mental health, it doesn't discriminate by age group, does it? It it it's across the the entire community, young and old, I suppose. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, um, mental health, depression, anxiety, it, <laughs> it doesn't discriminate. Um, it's it's there for everyone, and everyone has their for whatever reasons, you know, their struggles in life. So. Um, and I suppose we're, we're all experiencing a new world. So I think that's sort of at the moment, that's, I feel like that's bringing people closer together. And I think that's, um, you know, bridging the gap around those perceptions around, you know, what does an older person experience versus a, a younger person? I think um, we've never experienced anything like the, the floods and the fires and, and pandemics, you know, um, you know, there's not too many people that can say, hey, we've experienced a pa- pandemic. So I think COVID, if we look at some of the positives that we, we see out of that is, I think there's more people that are saying we're walking through this together. And I think that has certainly brought generations together. Um, and, you know, how do we support each other through these times, um, through uncertainties that we've never experienced before? So you mentioned COVID there and you know, the, the last three or so years through the pandemic. Have you seen an, in, an increase in um, mental health problems and challenges over that period of time? Has it led to, to, to an uptick of people feeling challenged and concerned? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's been, what a journey it's been. Um, you know, I've, I reflect and we've done this even with our own workforce, reflected on the, on the past, you know, two years, 18 months in particular, uh, and the roller coaster, and you know, as it does, doesn't matter 
you know, what part of Australia or, or where you've been, you know, you've been impacted um, in some way, shape or form. We've seen some people come out of it and it's been, um, you know, some people have, have had a, a life-changing experience uh, and, and for the better. Um, but what we're certainly seeing is, is a lot of people that are experiencing things that they've never experienced in the past. I remember the day when they, when the Prime Minister announced that we're closing all borders. Um, I was sitting in, um, in a centre um, in South Australia and I was away from home at the time. And I, I called my wife and I said, look, I'm heading back to um, Broken Hill. Um, they're suggesting that possibly the borders could close. Um, so I'm getting back to, to family. I said, um, and you know, n we have no idea what um, this is going to involve uh, and where this is heading and how bad it's going to be. So there was, you know, that whole uncertainty at the time and, you know, getting back um, to, to home was important and I think that was important for everyone. So whether or not you were just um, anybody in the community or you're the CEO of, of a Lifeline organisation, you know, at that time it was about, you know, the most important thing was family. And I think we all reflected on that and getting home and how important that, and that was. So I suppose then to, to then get home, we started to look at our services and, and realising that, you know, Lifeline is going to be needed more than it's ever been needed before. And, and that was highlighted by the amount of, you know, calls we started to receive. Um, you know, we went from, you know, 2,000 calls um, a day to 3,500 um, days and, and every day that we kept on monitoring those calls, you know, we were breaking further records um, and, you know, the volunteers that, you know, stood up and were able to continue um, to do the work. And, and sometimes I think, you know, we, we look at all the work that everyone's done over the last two years and, and you look at the governments and their ability to be able to do what they needed to do under trying circumstances and, and the hospitals and the health services. I mean, that's just you know, that stuff gives, you know, that spine tingling, tingling stuff um, and commitment, amazing. Um, and I often sit there and go, the unsung heroes um, are still out there and, and they're answering the calls every day when somebody picks up the phone and says, look, I'm not in a good place at the moment. Um, and during that time of pandemic, um, we didn't miss a beat and we continued to answer more, more calls um, but then we've seen, I think it's been really interesting as we've progressed because a lot of those calls initially coming through and people that were wanting, because uh, we, we, we had to change a lot of, lot of the ways that we, we did things as well. Um, our face-to-face -face services went straight to um, telephone services. Um, so, but our ability to be able to transition, you know, we've we got great learnings and learnings that will keep forever and, and, you know, it's changed the way that we do things and, and think about doing things at Lifeline. But for the client and the person or the, the, the people that are reaching out for help, what, what we've noticed is a significant change from people going, hey, I've got this sort of feeling and I don't know what it is and we're able to just walk them through that and say, it's okay, this is anxiety, that's a natural response of the body during these times of uncertainty. So we've seen a lot of that. And then I suppose the shift now and what we're starting, the concerns that we're starting to have is as we further get along and, and we've come um, through that journey of no longer lockdowns, um, you know, we got to that first day 
of the new year of 2022 and things were going to be different. Um, we were back open, living with COVID. Um, and we had a record, the record amount of calls that we've ever had to Lifeline on that first day. And as we've progressed through the journey, um, we're seeing a real shift now from people that would be a caller that, or a person accessing our services going, I'm feeling anxious to now, I'm feeling depressed. And what we know is that's the next step into a state of depression, um, you know, that acute mental health, subacute supports that are, that are needed. So if we were to now look at, you know, as we, we transition out and we're living with COVID, um, more than ever are we needing to put into place early intervention, prevention measures. Um, if we don't really start to focus and hone in and put our efforts into those spaces, um, you know, we're going to end up with similar um, outcomes that we're seeing in, in hospitals where we now see overcrowdings, um, you know, and, and that's our concern at the moment. It was certainly a, a unique environment where, you know, you talked about yourself with being, I think you said in Adelaide and having to go back to Broken Hill and with borders being closed very quickly and, uh, uh, and lockdowns and the like, you know, it's just something that we as a community really never anticipated we'd, we'd, we'd live through. Um, so a whole, whole new set of challenges that really came from nowhere in a way. Yeah, they did. And, and you know, being on a border, I mean, when people talk about, uh, you see what was happening in Tweed Heads and, and, and other areas, but, you know, we were experiencing the same thing. And, you know, it wasn't obviously getting um, the media attention because of population size, but Broken Hill is predominantly... Um, our services and supports through health and family and everything, everybody are, are 500 k's away in Adelaide. Um, so we were essentially locked from being able to, um, you know, move into South Australia. Um, and that caused a lot of angst a lot, around a lot, a lot of people as well, amongst many people. Um, you know, we, I still remember being here and, and, you know, the stresses even on our staff that that was causing. I mean, we had... We had staff here that were, were eight. It was completely out of their controls. Normally when you're dealing in a situation, um, our councillors are well equipped to be able to provide solutions and outcomes. That was the first time that I've had staff come to me and say, there's no solution. I've got a person that can't get back to South Australia, can't get to their job, they're running out of money, their, fam their wife and kids are in Adelaide and um, they are the breadwinner. They can't get there. And, that, you know, this is six weeks after. We've got South Australian um, borders being closed. No one's opening it up. People coming in and saying, I'm, I'm ready to give up. I'm considering taking my life. This is not worth it. And then them obviously not being able to have that magic solution of being able to open the borders. I mean, you know, they had to work so closely with those clients um, to reassure them that, you know, we, we will be able to get them someday back reunited with their families once again. Yep, certainly a, a very challenging uh, three or four years there. But just to, to move move on a little bit, um, Scott, I guess in your, your region that you look after, you have a large Indigenous community in the area that you support. Are there different factors involved in Indigenous mental health? Yeah, I think if, if you, you look at most, most importantly the healing process, um, and the trauma that's been caused, um, you know, for many generations and, and 
displacement. Um, and, you know, there's um, many, many years where, you know, our Aboriginal communities um, have experienced, um, you know, so much trauma um, that they, they, you get, gets to a point where, you know, when you go into those communities um, and you're trying to provide them supports and you've got communities that are losing hope and they feel that displaced um, and then you, and how important the environment is um, to our um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. I mean, they are so well connected with their environment. Um, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from the Aboriginal people on the importance of our environment. And when you sit there and you see the way that, um, you know, you know, the rivers and the rivers running and, and you know, when, you, when the rivers are running dry um, and that can be avoided, um, you go to the Wilcannia community. You, I, I can, you can go up there when, when the water's flowing and that is a completely different community to when it's not. Um, they are so connected. And I often say, what would be the response in Sydney if we emptied out the harbour and we allowed it to dry up? And what would people think? Um, imagine for all those people living on the North Shores or in Bondi, if we took away the ocean um, from them and how important they would see that as playing a part in their own mental health and well-being. Um, but, you know, we, we see these rivers run dry and we know what's causing the rivers to run dry um, and it's around those conditions and we can um, make a difference and, and we do impact with it. And, and you know, I, I often get frustrated when we, when we look at um, environment and we want to treat it as a political um, address rather than um, bipartisan coming together and, 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 and as, as communities. So uh, the state of living and housing conditions for Aboriginal pe people, it's appalling. Um, you know, high rates of, um, you know, incarceration, um, the lower, um, you know, um, living, um, you know, age that people live, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot that we uh, need to take responsibility and ownership for. And I think once we do that, that's, you know, you know we're attempting and we see some, some movement, but there's a lot, a lot of areas that we still need to improve on if we want to, um, you know, really make a difference to, to the mental health and wellbeing of our traditional landowners. That's a great insight, Scott, and, and thanks for sharing. If you found any of the content in today's episode distressing, you can reach out to Lifeline by calling 13 11 14 or texting 0477 13 11 14. Links to further resources and information can also be found in the show notes.